0: Greetings from your host, Ken Wang. This is the Badger Herald Podcast. This week, we're doing two feature episodes as we gear up for Madison's district alder race on April 6th. Today, we'll hear from the district's previous and current alder to better understand the position and what it has entailed in the past. First, we'll hear from the current alder, Max Prestigiacomo. Hi, Max. Uh, welcome to the show. Before we begin, would you please briefly introduce yourself? For sure. Thanks for having me.
1: So my name is Max Giacomo. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm from Madison, Wisconsin. My family's from the Greenbush neighborhood. I, I'm from the west side of Madison, and I was really involved in youth activism growing up, and I think a lot of that ra- radicalized me and started to recognize the, the flaws within inherent within all of our systems, especially at the university and at the city and, you know, being a young person, having access to all that activism and knowledge at my fingertips. And you know, I thought, you know, why not? And I decided to run for office, you know, and,
0: and hold space. And here I am. So could you please like briefly describe, like, what exactly do you do as a member of the council? Yeah, so I guess I'll, I'll start by saying, like, what the official
1: duties of an alder are, and, and I'll, I'll allude to, like, basically there being too many duties for a single alder to do, but essentially the district date alder, especially as an advantage, because there isn't as an active constituency as, as much as other districts, um, because students are gone kind of every summer. Basically, what an alder is doing is we have a common council meeting every other two weeks. Each alder is appointed to a committee and we spend probably four hours, four to eight hours every two weeks researching, preparing. Um, And then there's also another on top of that committee meetings and some of them can go pretty late into the night. On top of that, there's a lot of constituent relations and legislative work that I'm doing. So I would consider constituent relations, anything that has to do with like the neighborhood association. And then I'll get to this in a second, the university. And then you know the other side of it is crafting legislation, which I've, I've made sure to put a focus on because I do think the benefit of the district eight is that you have a lot of time to focus on legislation. So banning facial recognition, decriminalization of marijuana were a lot of things I was proud to be involved in. But the other side of that constituent relations and where I think the district elder differs quite a bit um, is we represent a constituency that is like 99% students, almost like 70% of our district is actually campus land. And like UW- UWPD has jurisdiction, so a lot of it is state jurisdiction. So we're in this weird situation where we don't necessarily have as many responsibilities when it comes to planning and zoning because that's done through the campus as other alders. But that doesn't mean that I get to spend more time uplifting and you know, supporting marginalized students that are engaging in campaigns pressuring the university to do something. And that's been like a precedent that I had to reverse because pretty much all of my predecessors took a vow to, you know, not actually speak on the university because they felt it was outside their jurisdiction. So yeah, that that's in a nutshell kind of what I do. And I'm, obviously it's like a more than a 20 hour week, you know, job. And there's a lot of difficulties that come with it, but we do have a referendum on the ballot to talk about that this spring. So,
0: you know, I learned that From many articles, you are the youngest person who has ever held a seat in the Madison Common Council. What prompted you to run? It's a really difficult question. I've probably been asked
1: it so many times and I always have a different answer. But like I said, I, I think I was radicalized a lot as a young person having access to perspectives that were different from my own because obviously I'm a white cis man and a lot of unlearning of white supremacy in climate activist circles and, you know, I kind of just noticed this gap in in leadership, you know, at, at the city or in, in electoralism, for that matter. And, you know, electoralism is kind of like a, a touchy subject in some of these circles, because it is something that actively causes harm for marginalized communities. So it is a privilege to engage in it. And I kind of felt that I wasn't seeing at least something that was like, even in between, like a halfway between what these leftist radicals were talking about on campus and, you know, just like moderates on campus. And then I kind of felt that, like, I had, a, I had an opportunity as a white cis male to, because I have a lot of privilege, to kind of use that for good and reverse a lot of what the problematic tendencies that were going on. And I'd argue that, like, I think my goal for all of this was to show the city as a whole, like, that politicians can be something else than what we're being given right now, and I think a lot of candidates like are definitely examples of that right now. But before that, I didn't really see anyone who was willing to go to bat, whatever it takes, and by any means necessary, make uncomfortable votes. And that's like the big thing is I was I was ready to be uncomfortable. That's not something that I know politicians are like they're conditioned to be not vulnerable and always in their own state of comfortability. And I just was ready to jump in and break some political decorum because I think that's what we need right now and and disruption in my opinion is key to actually achieving something because the status quo uh, was not was not helping us at the time and I don't think it still is now.
0: As I said, you know, I have read some of your uh, articles about you, I have browsed your website. So um, those sources, I know you are a huge advocate for climate change, you know, or climate related issues. But it seems that you didn't really focus on environmental policies as promised after, you know, winning the seat. Why is that? What were some other issues that caused this shift of focus? So I I talk a lot about my radicalization as a
1: climate activist. and I think that first started with me realizing just how sustainability and equity are so intertwined. They're intersectional. They're inextricably linked. Um, Like you can't talk about one without the other. And so when I, you know, I was running as a climate activist and I always say that no one who hasn't, isn't directly serving on the inside can ever put together like an accurate platform or an accurate policy or really fully understand what's going on. And that's just how, that's a problem right there. Like it's, it's something I've been working to address. And so like, I'm out, I'll be very open about the fact that like me and I know so many other candidates when we put together platforms, like a lot of that stuff is really difficult to even figure out how we can do it. So only once I'm like, I'm on the inside, was I really able to kind of see all the moving parts in front of me and understand that we've got a way bigger issue than just climate justice. As far as climate justice goes, like I kind of saw it as because equity and climate justice do go hand in hand that we need to focus a lot of our attention on equity because the city is really far behind. It's one of the worst places to live for black people in the country. And I'll also take that to make a point that like, there is no such thing as like single issue climate work. Like there is no such thing as focusing just on climate issues. You know, the point I want to get across and like what I've realized throughout my radicalization is, is that sustainability is equity. If not a majority of affordable housing is in high risk zones of climate flooding, um, higher temperatures. Uh, We have, you know, increased drought there's lots of stuff coming and what we know is that it disproportionately impacts marginalized communities and so i kind of take that as an a cue to like we can't be wasting time talking about like what small green energy policy we do here if there are people in poverty that straight up can't access necessities in the city we will be actively leaving them behind and it will be lethal if we don't actually address equity and why black and just people of color have such a hard time in the city so you know, that's why I don't don't get asked a lot about it. But I, I wish I did, because I think it's a really important point to make that, you know, for example, one, one thing that I struggle with is when we're talking about decarbonization of our transit fleet, obviously, we want to get to as much decarbonization as possible. But I just talked about how there are people in poverty, disproportionately people of color that can't access necessities. And right now, unfortunately, green energy, you know, buses that run on electricity aren't as efficient as all of these, the transit we have now, or at least some mixture of it. And so it's kind of a question like, do we focus on decarbonization or do we focus on, you know, ensuring that marginalized communities who are likely to be harmed a lot by the climate crisis can at least have access to some necessities or access to the downtown core. So that's like a, a, an issue that I've been struggling with. And I'm, I spend, I'm spending conversations talking to both my potential successors about it because I think it's probably the biggest issue that we face as a city figuring out where how to balance equity and sustainability and um, you know how to check ourselves as like a a predominantly white privileged city.
0: So to follow up you know what like what current environmental policies are good for conservation of nature and what could the you know the city do to be more environmentally friendly?
1: Yeah so another big Big, big, big problem that I did not bring up was obviously the state. And so this goes for like pretty much every policy lever that we try at the city. It's, most of it's always preempted. The, the main area that the city has when it comes to policy is like zoning and development and planning. So when we talk about sustainability, that's the main area that the city can be focusing on. Something as simple as adopting green building code is preempted by the state. We can't do that. So it's pretty much been up to the city to find loopholes here and there. You know, it, it's expensive to go green. Like that's a fact that a lot of us have to grapple with. And I just talked about it. And if the state is actively impeding our ability to actually enforce that, like a lot of, a lot of the policies that I want to enact are, are pretty much on arrival. They're going to be voluntary. They, they can't be enforced by the city. Um, and that goes for so many different policies, not just sustainability. The one example that I talk about a lot is how we can do green roofs and solar panels. That's probably the most like intriguing and likely you know, scenario that we'll get is we can lower some some height um, requirements downtown to allow developers to put solar panel panels. Um, and this is something, like I'm saying this, it's not something that I have been like the main pu- pushing person of that because staff is already, because we can't really focus on big overarching policies, uh, staff kind of picks up the slack and is, is working on this. And actually the planning commission is putting together a package right now of some type of workaround of the the green building code, but as far as like trying to actually do climate sustainability stuff, I kind of see it as we're in a problem way over our heads caused by, you know, less than a hundred corporations. And the problem is way worse than just addressing, you know, building developments. And so that's just kind of how I see all policies at the city is if you wanna get something done, you're gonna have to put in 10 times the work because it muffles anything that you do, and it's designed to push back against radicals that want to disrupt that status quo. So there isn't really something that I could uh, name that's like a, a big climate justice policy. The only real thing we have is like creating a, a climate sustainability plan, which unfortunately hasn't been followed up through and through by the city. So it's it's a really depressing situation to talk about, but you know, thankfully we do have some good candidates this time around and I'm, I'm pledging to you know, actually be a resource to my, my successor to actually start implementing some of these climate policies including getting environmental friendly like lights on Lakeshore path.
0: I think that's a great idea especially the last thing you just said because as we all know Lakeshore gets really dark in the night and it could be dangerous for students to walk that path. Another issue other elders, you know, the, the ones before and the, the, the future ones, the current two candidates, focus on is, is racial and social justice. Minorities face police brutality all the time. Therefore, you know, many politicians, activists, and community leaders believe in defunding the police. So what were some initiatives you have taken to push for racial social justice? And what do you think the movement of defunding the police should entail? Yeah,
1: so <clears throat> the goal of defunding our police department, we've got a foot in the door. Um, you know, it's something that I've, I probably like went into it first. I was, like, before the campaign and before, before everything, I remember like saying, at a campaign meeting that like, I wanted to abolish the police and some people were like taken aback by that. And I think it's become a little bit more accepted now. And so it is something that I was, fortunately had time to research beforehand. And so I did actively like come into it with an understanding of like Eugene, Oregon's um, program um, and how that actively helped people. And so I think pretty much what we've got right here is direct policy lever that we aren't using to our full advantage. Um, obviously it's in a pilot program right now. We've dedicated about half a million dollars to a CAHOOTS program. But the way I see it is that's, that's the way forward. That's how we can you know abolish the police departments is shift all of our funding towards nonviolent public safety um, professionals like that who have the expertise to actually handle someone in a mental health crisis. Um, and then on top of that, like, this is where like, I differ from a lot of my colleagues. I wanna start tearing apart the, the capital and uh, expenses of the police department. For example, we have dozens of police buildings littered across the city that should be converted into community centers, teen centers. And I just think that we've got a, a long way to go mentally as like a council and, and who we elect in the city because I don't really see Except for maybe one or two others, Rebecca Campbell and Grant Foster, there really isn't anyone else that would call themselves an abolitionist or would kind of agree with the, the idea that police only protect a yeah, select few and that police don't really make people feel safe, certain people feel safe. Yeah, I think, I think we've, we've got a foot in the door with Cahoots, fortunately we have something um, because before there wasn't really an idea of like how, what, what the money would be going towards. But I hope that we see like an actual department created, a nonviolent public safety department that can actually start handling this stuff, which includes CAHOOTS. And, and that means you to PD too. And thankfully, ASM has been working really hard to get a, a CAHOOTS pilot similar to what we're, having, what we're seeing with the county and city going on campus.
0: Great. I, I completely agree. You know, I I believe that Kahoo's motto, right? Uh, the uh the motto for community policing for professionals to de-escalate uh crises, whether it's a uh, mental health crisis or a medical emergency, uh, is the future of uh, keeping us safe. Um, Besides policing issues, you know, minorities are also impacted by housing issues, especially uh, during this uh, this pandemic. The, the exa- because of that, you know, the ex- existing housing issues um, or crisis has become worse. Uh, how has the council or you uh, addressed the, the housing crisis? What issues have been resolved and what are some issues that continue to exist?
1: Yeah, so I'll, I'll probably separate this into two kind of categories, one being campus area and students and the other just being the city as a whole. Starting with the city, you know, we've, we've invested quite a bit of money into these permanent men's shelters. You know, I do think it's unfortunate that that is what we're focusing on. I think I would rather have our money be spent on guaranteeing housing for all. You know, but that is something I guess is a, a temporary solution, even though it's called the permanent men's shelter. And I hope that more elders start to talk about that. As far as like housing policy at the city goes, it's a really difficult situation again because the state has preempted us in pretty much every single way we can't we can't do z- inclusionary zoning which requires um, developers to include affordable housing. there isn't really any state policy or city policy lever that can guarantee affordable housing however there's something that's like starting to develop which is land banking it's something that I've been a part of pushing with Rebecca Campbell and Grant Foster, is basically the, the city needs to buy parcels of, parcels of land and then it needs to keep it in, in the land bank and reserve it for affordable housing only or, or something that they would deem as an, a public good or a necessity. And the city's just started doing that, I believe. We have like maybe two parcels of land right now. Last budget, we tried getting in a real estate supervisor, uh, like a city employee to actually manage this property budgets are getting tight because the state levy, uh, the state has imposed a levy on it and we don't have enough money. So that, that's the biggest, uh, I think, step forward that we're heading towards right now as far as like community housing guarantee. And we've got a long way to go. Switching over to the campus side, we have like n- nearly 20% housing insecurity on campus. It's, it's bad. Uh, and like I've raised this with the university that I don't think there's enough being done I would say UW administrators and most people like, um, I guess on the county and the city, because I talk about how the students are kind of the cultural and um, economic center of the city too. And there's not much recognition for slum lords that are basically taking over campus and the lack of tenant protections that thanks again to the state we can't implement. So right now a policy that I've been working on it's, it's small, but it's, it's something that can get around the state preemption and, and will head us in some sort of direction is students, quantifying an income for a student is really difficult. So when we talk about affordable housing, for it to be affordable housing, a landlord has to verify a tenant's income. And that's extremely difficult with a student because there's they could be claimed as dependent. So there is a lot of boundaries for students to actually get housing like that. And so the city recently started working with the Office of Financial Aid at UW to send out a request for proposals for developers that would want to work with UW to set aside guaranteed student affordable housing. Um, and that UW Office of Financial Aid, um, because they already have FAFSA and they've already sorted out what a student's income looks like, can just connect the two. So that's, that's hopefully one actually specific example is they're redeveloping the Lake Street, bottom State Street garage. Um, They're going to put housing development on top of it. That'll be the first pilot program. The first example of what we'll see is like affordable student housing, explicitly student affordable housing. So it's a little bit of a different approach. Again, I do think the UW is a little bit at fault here because they haven't built affordable housing since the 1970s. And like it's, it's something that I guess they don't really see as a priority, even though there's a lot of their students that live off campus and they're jacking up the, the dorm pricing so yeah, it's, it's a difficult situation housing because of the state, but I'm, you know, we have a few loopholes that we're trying to push here and there.
0: So as a member of the council, I think it is safe to say that this is a very tough job to, to have, as you have said earlier, it's, a re- it's, it's very challenging. It's very demanding for a, for a student. What were some most challenging or demanding problems you have faced um, or solved you know, during your time at the council? So I would say, unfortunately, right now,
1: like literally maybe the past week or month is probably where I've actually finally felt like I fully understand the system and can actually like fully operate within it, Um, like understanding all the policy levers. So I don't, I think it's, I think it is a part of the problem of like the bias maybe or the viewpoint that other elders in the city holds towards the district eight older. I'll be sort of my ignorance was used against me. Um, many, many times throughout policy planning, throughout the beginning where I was kind of just involved in committee work, you know, there isn't really a adequate orientation system that I would say like equips an alder to figure that out. And I think on top of that, I wasn't, you know, I obviously had a few people that I um, talked to on the council, but I never really was able to have a full understanding so it's unfortunate that it took me like a while. And I, I know that's true for actually every older, they always say that, that it took them maybe like a couple months or something, but it, it did take me a while to kind of figure out with COVID and everything acting in this kind of crisis that I did not know would happen when I ran. So I would say that's the big one.
0: You know, to to follow up, uh, you you are a member of the council, but you're also a student at the university. Um, so as a student, how do you balance your academics and the responsibilities of a, of a member at the council? It's
1: really difficult because, you know, they say part-time, they say 20 hours a week, but it's usually just like, you're always working or they're always getting an email that's maybe at like 10 at night or like at 6 a.m. And then phone calls, obviously. So I, I try to like set out a day every week or so that I'm like not doing council work. And usually that's, that's not the case um, obviously I'm like doing my lectures in school throughout that but I, I kind of use that day to just like uh, reset and just like calibrate to everything that happened and not worry about like all the life-threatening like policy decisions that are happening that are being derailed by certain people on the council. I think it's one of the things that I, I talk a lot about is like how the straight older is like a de facto university uh like student official like has a platform in a way and should be using that to advocate for students. I think that sometimes helps in it all is because when I do like, you know, I have bi-weekly have meetings with the, the chair of ASN and the Dane County, Elena Hazel, the supervisor. And so I think that really helps that we tie in these other institutions. So when I am like doing stuff at the council, I know that the students are behind me in some degree and that there are students that are listening and that's also just my belief that I think students have, are an enormous untapped power source when it comes to like forcing legislative change. But fortunately, I do think a candidate, you know, there's been a coalition built by the BIPOC coalition, TAA, um, a lot of groups on campus that I, I do think heading into next year we will be able to see like how when we we'll do mass registrations of young people for speaking and harness that power, I think we'll be able to see some actual legislative changes in the budget.
0: So, as you know, the April election is coming up. Um, how would you continue to be involved in activism after the election? And what advice would you give students, especially for those who want to pursue public service? I guess what I'm continuing on,
1: fortunately, we are selected an amazing state representative, Francesca Hong, uh, into state office. And so I've been kind of actually doing a lot of work and continue to do a lot more work in that office. And I think. In that position i'll be able to help a lot of like my successor i'm also going to be in uh the asm student council so i think you know i've got, I've got a lot of university stuff planned that i you know obviously think it should have been done years and years ago um but as far as like this district alder, older um, i've told both of the candidates that you know i'm i'm 100 down to be a resource you know, tell tell them what no one ever told me. And I just said, like, I feel like I just now kind of understand how to do everything. So I will kind of act as an advisor in some capacity to them because I never had a predecessor that was really understanding enough to act in in that way and help me. So, yeah, I think that'll be the biggest campus-related one is, you know, I do plan on helping out whoever it is. And, in fact, I'm writing, like, a giant memo, a lot of policies that I've left um, kind of halfway and ideas for starting new policies.
0: Awesome, thank you so much. Uh, so to wrap our to wrap up our discussion here, uh, thank you, Max, for taking the time uh, to join me and have such a great conversation. Uh, I believe you have inspired many young people to be more active in political participation. Um, you have done some important work for our community, and I wish you all the best in your future endeavors. Thank you. Our next guest of the hour is Zach Wood, who served as District 8 Alder from 2015 to 2019. Zach Wood is a UW Madison alumnus who graduated with a degree in political science in 2015. After college, he was an Alder for the City of Madison. In 2017, he won re-election and continued to be a member of the Madison Common Council for District 8 until 2019. Zach, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here this morning.
0: Of course. Um, So before our conversation today, would you please tell us what was your Wisconsin experience like and what role did it play for you in deciding to be a member of the Madison Common Council?
2: So after spending time at UW-Madison as a student. The district I represented encompassed most of, I guess, the campus proper, so every UW dormitory and a couple of the neighborhoods surrounding campus. Um, It was also my time at UW that I think really both familiarized me with the neighborhood I ultimately represented Um, and also kind of got me plugged into campus and city government. So immediately upon entering school, I got involved with the College Democrats, worked on various campaigns, federal, state, and then eventually local. Uh, it was actually one of those local campaigns that kind of inspired me to run. I worked on the re-election campaign for the previous District 8 Alder, uh, Scott Resnick, and that really opened my eyes to you know, how much you can impact the day-to-day life of, of your neighbors at the local level. I mean, I, we all talk about the, the slow pace of federal and, and state government, um, which has gotten slower recently. But locally in an aldermanic term or two, you can You can make some change. You can really represent people, you know, the people who live in the communities around you. I found that to be really exciting.
0: So as a political student myself with uh, recent events such as Black Lives Matter movement and, um, you know, the advocacy for Stop the Asian Hate, what did the scenario for racial equity during your terms as an elder look like? How did you push for social and racial justice for minorities and what are what were some issues that have been solved and some that continue to exist?
2: Sure. So the I guess I'll take part of that from from back to front. I think the issues of the horrible, very, very deep seated inequities in our community and in our country will take a very long time and a lot of effort to really solve. Um, They've been in existence since I mean, before we were a nation, truly, well before 1776 and, and the, our, our Declaration of Independence from England, there was already generations of slavery in this country. So it, it goes longer. Than, our, our sins are longer than our, our nation's history. As far as, as what the environment was like, I don't want to minimize the lived experience of our communities of color. Because they've known of these issues as long as they've been alive, because they live it every single day. But I will say that from a sort of political consciousness, the Race to Equity report in 2013 really put equity and and Madison's uh, failures in that regard kind of at the forefront. Um, That was, I don't know if you are familiar with it, but a report run that kind of highlighted Madison as one of the, if not the worst community in the country to be a Black person. And I think to a lot of white Madison liberals, that was eye-opening because it didn't really jive with the narrative of this being a a wonderful progressive place. That was immediately followed by Ferguson and then the killing of Tony Robinson in the the years following, which I think only served to prove the extent to which those issues exist, even in Madison. And and listeners can't see the, the air quotes I just put up. Um, but there there was kind of that feeling I, I felt that there was this perception that, well, racism is a Southern thing. It is not. It is very much not. Um, and I think that that forced many in Madison's sort of political scene to begin to grapple with that. And, and, and I think we did see if you look at campaign literature from, say, the mid 2000s, 2006, 2008 to now you have seen just the frequency of the words, you know, race, social justice, equity. It has become a, a bigger focus as it needed to um, locally. And, and we've also frustratingly seen how long it's taken to move the needle on some of these issues. There are issues that the council is tackling now that we tackled or talked about, had the preliminary discussions about during my first year on, on, uh, on the council.
0: Uh, as a, a student of color myself, thank you for acknowledging that because not everybody is open-minded and willing to acknowledge the fact that the existence of white privilege and the bad things that happen with it. You know, while we're on this topic, right, pushing for social and racial justice um, also exists in other capacities such as housing issues, Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that you have addressed in your campaign or during Mm -hmm. your time at the council. What was the most pressing housing issue back then And how was that different from, or similar to the housing crisis that we have now due to the pandemic?
2: Sure, so the the pandemic has like so many things just thrown an additional wrench or or complicating factor into an already really difficult situation. Um, Beyond the pandemic, Madison still has a housing crisis. It's unbelievably expensive. Something that I brought up during my campaign, it's just a, a point that I wanted to drive home for an in-state student, especially, we talk plenty in sort of the, the state and national discourse about the unbelievable cost of higher education, which is a thing we need to talk about. It is preventing all but the privilege from chasing higher education in, in many cases. But you can spend almost as much at UW on an apartment as you do a year in tuition. And that's another obstacle that still doesn't get enough discussion. If we want to create an equitable society, an equitable future, an equitable Wisconsin, that's something we need to address. If people of all backgrounds can't afford to attend the university, and that's not just tuition, but actually like living there, getting the UW experience, you're failing. You're, you're not creating an equitable Wisconsin if if everybody doesn't have access, real access, to your institutions of higher ed. So that was always a priority of mine. Um, the Biggest issues as far as lack of housing affordability on campus are still there. And that is another one of those incredibly complicated and, and very, very um, old issues. I, it, as Madison changes, the downtown is getting a little bit younger. We've all seen the demand from fairly affluent young professionals driving a very expensive housing development. I like to talk about things that even happened before that, right? So you have the state seat of government. We know that where state governments are located, there tends to be pretty strong economies just because of all the jobs involved in that. We also have a world-class research university, the UW Madison, separated by a one mile street on an isthmus with a height cap um, due to the capital. So a housing crisis was, I think, always going to happen here. You've got two perpetual engines of economic growth, limited dirt to build on, you also can't build down because of the water table. Uh, that, that's another issue a lot of our buildings run into. Um, and you can't build up. So there's kind of the, the, the classic, very entry level urban planning philosophy, we would say, to build an incredibly dense city like you see in Manhattan, which is also built not on an isthmus, but, but built like around water, but incredibly dense. We can't do that here. So as people continue, as the city grows, as more people want to live here, especially downtown. There's enormous pressure placed upon those typically at the bottom of the rental market. In many cases, that's students. And so we still need to increase the supply of affordable and, affordable and market rate housing.
0: You know, to follow up with this question, what are some ways that the local and the state government can do uh, to mitigate the, the housing crisis?
2: With, with state and federal government, the more money that's available for affordable housing, um, obviously, the better. Um, the, the more affordable units that we can construct, the, the better we're going to be able to take care of our most marginalized. Um, we also need to get better at promoting infill and density. I mean, We just talked about how there is limited space that we can build out on campus. You run into Mendota if you go far enough, or you run into Lake Winger or Lake Monona, go in the other direction. Uh, so we do need to get denser. I think that's, that's something that has been identified by just about everybody kind of working in and around the the housing issue in Madison. I think we also got to look at the type of housing we're building. One of the things I pushed for didn't quite get done in as far as changing the zoning code was allowing for what are called micro units. They've been somewhat successful both in Europe and then some other cities in America where they're basically really efficient efficiencies. They're not a good fit for everyone. But in particular, I viewed them as a really effective way for folks who may be studying abroad one year. Obviously, none of that is happening right now. But people who just need a place for a semester or a year, I know graduate students were interested in them. But if you're literally just looking for an affordable home, an affordable and safe and quality place to to live in between your studies, um, they can be really effective. There is not a one-size-fits-all solution to Madison's housing crisis. That's another thing that I think is really important. It's not just high-rises, it's not just efficiencies, it's not just co-ops, it's all of that. And we need a a housing policy that is comprehensive and equitable and factors in all of the, some of them unique factors that make Madison's housing market really difficult to be a renter in.
0: I've seen the reports from UWS Institute for Research on Poverty. You know, I learned that nearly half of the Dane County's renter households are cost burdened, meaning that uh, the renters pay more than 30% of their income to pay rent, and some pay more than 50%, which consider extremely burdened to cover their housing expenditure. So while we're on this topic, you know, as you mentioned earlier, that college student housing is also a very concerning issue because they're very expensive and students don't have a student, a steady source of income. So given this situation, what can the university and the government do to assist students facing housing security, whether they live in dorms or apartments?
2: Sure. So one of the things that... I think is really important there. You mentioned the, the lack of income for a lot of students. Part of why there isn't much, if any, in the way of traditional affordable housing for college students is because the way the government measures income for people. And Matt Wacker, who I don't know his new title because he, he used to be director of real estate services, but I think he got promoted at the city. We talked about essentially trying to come up with a way to really view true affordability of student housing, potentially by creating a partnership that we discussed with the bursar's office. What we wanted to get, we wanted to get a true sense for income and ability to pay for housing. Because one of the issues we ran into when we we looked at and other campuses have tried this, trying to do an income-based housing model, students with the wealthiest parents have incomes of zero because they don't have a student job. They're not working on the side. Whereas if you're a student who is paying their own way, doesn't come from money, and so is working 40 hours or more a week on top of their schooling, they actually will have a higher income than, say, somebody who's taken unpaid internships and nothing else because they can afford to. The internships are a whole other side conversation, unpaid internships, incredibly privileged institution as a whole, Uh, we don't need to go there. But that's one issue that we tried to figure out and and using the bursar's office was was a way that we looked to kind of mitigate that.
0: I actually did not know that. So I thank you uh, for that. Um, So just to follow up, you know, international students are a very important part of the Mm -hmm. UW community, as you know. I myself, for one, is an international student. So what about international students in this... Uh, you know, housing prices, like they charge international students the most, even the tuition the same, but they, they up the price in housing, and some of them, you know, may have uh, financial insecurities. So Mm -hmm. how can the university acknowledge that?
2: This is probably a statement that could be applied to a lot of things, but I really wish the university would live its values. Um, I I think that everybody in Bascom would tell you that We believe a a truly international and global student body provides a better, more enriching campus community for everybody, and they would be correct in saying that you then need to treat people like that. Uh, If you actually want to create a welcoming community, that should be reflected in your housing policy, that should be reflected in the culture you create, that should be reflected in what you charge people to attend your institution. So that's really where I would start.
0: I agree. Uh, I think as an international students, I think sometimes, you know, UW doesn't always provide the support that international students need. Earlier, I think there was an article from the Herald that's called Cash Cow or like a true members of the community in the feature Mm -hmm. section. Uh, So to our listeners, if you haven't checked that article out, please do so. I digress. As we are talking about, you know, student financing and especially in terms of housing, how can students enroll in affordable housing plans to reduce their financial burden brought by high tuitions? Sure. So that is an area where and I argued this
2: while I was on the council, argued it while campaigning, that there is kind of a nationwide policy failure because it's very, very difficult. In many cases, students aren't eligible Full-time college students aren't eligible for a lot of things, subsidized, affordable housing, high on that list in many cases. So unfortunately, there isn't really an excellent answer there. And that is absolutely a blind spot in uh, regulatory policy.
0: Another important issue that you have acknowledged is our climate change and environmental policies as a Mm -hmm. member of the council. How did the Common Council work on addressing climate change during your term? What are some things that the state or the local government should improve?
2: Sure. So that was arguably my proudest accomplishment in my four years on the council. Uh, I was one of the lead sponsors on Madison's commitment to 100% Renewable Energy. I don't also, I want to, before talking any further, I do want to acknowledge that any elected official who you know, touts and accomplishment. There are so many wonderful staff people and other legislators involved there. I did not make that happen. We did. So I just want to acknowledge everyone else who worked really, really hard on that, including the the policy professionals who actually like wrote it. And so that, yeah, one of the things that the city of Madison can do to promote sustainability is to actually try to hit that goal, or maybe even exceed it. I think we then need to look beyond just city operations. I think that there's a huge need to look at everything from the way we prioritize types of transportation with our infrastructure. This is, again, kind of a a theme that we come back to, but we need to live our values. And we talk about all the time this need to move towards a, a sustainable, greener future. We all acknowledge that that involves significantly less car travel. And yet the car, the automobile seems to still be the focal point in many transportation conversations. And it needs to be walking, biking, mass transit. Something that would make that a lot easier would be more state and federal money to fund transit. It's incredibly expensive and upfront costs, but something like bus rapid transit is an option. It has its pros and cons. I would love to see this city someday have the money to do fare-free transit. The fact that there is a cost attached to the bus is prohibitive for a lot of people. The bus pass for UW students is a wonderful thing, but if you're not eligible for that, or as soon as you graduate, it's Either very expensive to buy the passes, or two dollars a ride, which is prohibitive for a lot of people. And we could talk about that for several hours. So I'll stop there to avoid derailing the interview.
0: Oh, thank you. Those are all you know great information uh, for 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 myself and for our listeners to to learn more about. In our conversation, you have mentioned and also tackled. Uh, many issues. What were some challenges that you have faced during your time at the council in terms of, you know, addressing some of the challenges or trying to solve some issues?
2: Sure. So, I mean, in a lot of ways, the biggest challenge was just the size of the issues, the size, scale, scope, and complexity. Madison has been, as we talked about, has been kind of rocketing towards a housing crisis since it was built on an isthmus, And so problems that took Decades and centuries to, to build often take just as long to dig out of. I don't think it'll take that long in this case, but to, I mean, to increase the vacancy rate by one unit, you got to build it or change the, the number of people renting. Yeah, I guess to inc- one of the, we, we identify building more housing as, as a key to making housing more affordable. In order to do that, you got to find somebody to build it, you got to get the plans drafted. You have to get it approved. You have to get the ground uh, dug open. You have to get the building built, and then you got to get people living in it. And that's for one structure. So it does take time to change things. So, you know, We also look at you know, issues of affordability. We look at equity. Um, we look at the, the lack of, of transit in some, in some of the most marginalized parts of our city. And it just does take time to get those things done, which can be frustrating. Uh, there's also just the... the constant reality of money. Cities, especially in, in the wake of COVID, are having to do more uh, with less. And that's I do not envy the alders going into this year's budget. That's going to be very, very difficult because there's going to be some incredibly important programs and ideas and projects that are either not going to be fully funded or not funded at all. And that's just the, the fiscal reality of the moment. That was, I think, the hardest part of being an elder especially as being an alder who is a firm believer that government can and should make people's lives better when you can't come up with the money to do it, because you, we have levy limits in the state. There is only so much money you can generate in that way. There's federal grants we didn't get, things like that. That was always a challenge.
0: You know, as we know, the alder the election is coming up in April in a matter of weeks, So in your opinion, what issues, obviously, are many, do you think the council should prioritize after the April election? The first one I would say, obviously, equity and sustainability
2: are are forever issues. We're never going to be done with them. And I believe that if we ever get to a point where we think we're done, we will backslide almost immediately. And so I think those will take constant investment because they are so deeply ingrained in our institutions issues of of equity, especially, there's probably not an institution in this country that doesn't have some degrees of of white supremacy baked into its structure. Uh, And so that's something we always got to be looking at uh, and and looking to improve. Beyond that, and this is a little bit nebulous, I think, making good fiscal decisions because of the, the monetary strain that COVID has created. One of my, other, my former colleagues, Mo Cheeks, was always fond of saying that cities are in the forever business. Um, and I, I think that that's really appropriate. Making sure that the city is both making the large investments it needs to make, make now, but also that it has the capacity to do so next year and the year after that, and the year after that, and so on and so forth. Because what we, we know we have priorities now, and it is easy to say, well, let's let's borrow more than we can afford today, but doing so means that you can't be responsive to the issues of Madison in 2030. And that's not a good way to govern either.
0: Lastly, uh, this is more general from your perspective as an alumnus. uh, What advice would you give UW students in pursuit of public service and student activism?
2: Sure. So student activism, the first thing I'd say is just show up to stuff, Um, even public service too. show up. I ended up running for Alder because somebody at a college Democrats meeting mentioned that Scott Resnick was running for reelection and was looking for some people to maybe work on his campaign. And I I shot him a Facebook message, I think, or maybe somebody floated his. No, somebody mentioned me to him. I sent him a a Facebook friend request. He sent me a DM and said, hey, do you want to go grab coffee? I did. And that's how this whole thing started. There are so many opportunities just floating around campus for leadership, for involvement. I think that, yeah, the the biggest and best piece of advice I could give is just don't be afraid to do stuff. Don't be afraid to fail at things. People generally don't remember those. Um, I was involved in co-founding a nonprofit that didn't really go anywhere. Nobody ever talks about that, and that's okay. But it did kind of... I met some people through that that were influential in becoming an older and in my career since then. And it's, it's a journey. That's another thing. You don't have to know where you're going. I, I think that there is so much pressure placed that even middle schoolers now to like do career mapping. I know we, we even had to do that. Like, Whoa, what do you want? You know, do like a career workshop in eighth grade. You don't know. You don't know when you're. there are people I know who are 30 who don't know what they want to do. And they're some of the smartest, most talented people I know. So, yeah. Show up to stuff, try things, don't be afraid to fail, and don't feel like when you're a junior at UW, you have to know what you're gonna do with your life. Because even if you think you do, you might not.
0: To wrap up here, uh, thank you so much, Zach, for taking the time to come to our show and have such a good conversations with me. I learned a lot from you today, and I think this conversation will stimulate a lot more conversations and will encourage community leaders uh, student activists to take charge in improving the uh, status quo. So thank you so much, Zach. Yeah, thanks for having me. To our listeners, thank you for tuning in today. If you have any suggestions, comments, or questions about our program, please contact us at podcast I hope you enjoyed our conversation today. Please stay tuned for more episodes. I'm your host, Ken at the Badger Herald. This is the Badger Herald podcast. This episode is edited by Keegan Schlosser. The script is prepared by Jeffrey Deese, Quincy Croner, and myself. Thank you, Madeline Medina and Emma Grant for contributing to this episode. It would have not been possible without your input.